Melinda Gates helps run the world's largest charitable foundation, the Gates Foundation. Over the years, it's worked to curb infectious diseases like Ebola and polio. And recently, it's been focused on coronavirus. I sat down with Melinda for the Wall Street Journal's annual Tech Live conference, which brings together media, technology, and business leaders and starts Monday. Hi, Melinda. Hi, Kate. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, welcome to my podcast booth, where we record our show, The Journal. It's a little more spare than your background. Thanks for having me. Melinda has years of experience with vaccine distribution, and she's also advocated for gender equity policies around the world. We spoke about how coronavirus has raised major questions about both of those issues. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Friday, October 16th. Coming up on the show, a conversation with Melinda Gates. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with GlobalX ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. For the past 20 years, the Gates Foundation has been part of a group that's brought hundreds of millions of vaccine doses to developing countries. And Melinda's been closely watching the race to develop a vaccine for COVID. There are several candidates already in late-stage trials, and experts like Dr. Fauci have said that a vaccine could be ready by the end of this year and ready for distribution early next year. What are your biggest concerns when it comes to distributing an eventual vaccine in the U.S.? Well, in the U.S., I think my biggest concern is vaccine hesitancy, because we know that the amount of disinformation that's out there has made people say that they're not sure they want to take the vaccine up right away. That makes sense. We all have to know that whatever we're putting in our bodies is safe. But I think, you know, Americans need to remember we have the FDA and they make sure that these vaccines are safe. Drug companies making these vaccines had a pact. The pact was that they would say that the vaccine was safe before they put it forward to the FDA. Why did they need to do that? Well, I think they could see the vaccine hesitancy that was rising across the United States. And they wanted to say to the American people, we are going to make sure this vaccine is safe because they want to make sure people know, hey, we're not going to ship something before it's ready. This is unprecedented to see these pharmaceutical companies come together to say, we want to make sure this goes right for everybody because they know this is a global problem and we've got to get through it. And our tool that's coming is a vaccine. Do you think that that reflected a distrust in the FDA? No, I think it reflected a distrust in the administration. And they wanted to give some backing to the FDA because they, you know, they rely on the FDA to say, when our vaccines come out, they are safe. Why is there distrust in the administration? 
I think that's a question, (laughs) you know, best got at by polling. Um, But I think we've seen a lot of negative things said about our American institutions by the administration. I think you've seen a lot of meddling that we've never seen before. What I know to be true from the many, many travels I have done around the globe now for 20 years, we are incredibly lucky to have these institutions. The CDC and FDA have been criticized during the course of this pandemic for a variety of reasons. Are you confident in these institutions around the vaccine right now? They're amazing institutions. And I think as American people, we have to remember why those institutions were set up. The CDC was set up to make sure it gave health guidance, scientific, solid, sound health advisement to the health commissioners around the United States in every single region. That's the CDC's job. And then you've got the FDA that is the gold standard for approval of vaccines. People around the world look to the FDA to say, okay, Americans use that vaccine. It's safe for us to use in our bodies too. And so you're seeing those institutions push back. And I think part of the problem has been that they have been politicized in certain ways, or the leadership has politicized them. What do you think the federal government should have done better during the pandemic? They should have empowered the CDC fully to do what it was meant and set up to do, and that is to carry out a national testing plan to group up all of the testing across the United States, allocate it fairly, make sure that we put further testing in, and then to have a contact tracing system that would be put in place that we would all trust so that as disease broke out in pockets and in various communities, people immediately knew that they needed to isolate or eventually quarantine. That's what should have been done, a national testing plan. That's what we should expect as the American people. That's what we pay our tax dollars. We don't need 50 different solutions that are competing with one another. That makes no sense. That's why we have a federal government. But isn't that how the healthcare system is set up? The states run their health system? Not everything is set up that way. Like, you have to look at the state's funding, both where they get their funding in state, but also where they get it from the federal system. But the whole reason we have a structure of states and a federal government is we are better off when we work together as 50 united states, not 38 states over here and a few others over there and a pocket of these two states, you know, pick your favorite states. We are in a federation together for a reason. And in the middle of a pandemic, you would think we would act together as 50 states. So you know more about vaccine development and this virus than most of us. What should we expect from the next 12 months? I think we should expect that we will start to see vaccine coming out in the first and second quarter, but particularly second quarter, for healthcare workers all over the globe and other populations, and it will continue to roll through there. I do think it will take until, quite frankly, you know, sometime in 2022, maybe the end of 2022, to have everybody around the globe vaccinated who needs to be vaccinated. Oh, man. That goalpost just keeps changing. 2021, now you're saying 2022 for the world. 
I think you'll see certain economies starting to get up and running, but I think it could, you know, we have a lot of repair and work to do ahead of us to get the whole global economy fully working. What COVID-19 has done is it has laid bare the inequities we have in the United States. Those inequities were always there, but they were hidden. All of a sudden, they're very visible to us. After the break, one specific inequity that COVID has exposed. What is dedication? People ask how your children learn how to ride a bike and you didn't. I just created an environment where they taught themselves and all I had to do was be there. That's dedication. Visit fatherhood.gov to hear more. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back. The September jobs data showed a historic number of women drop out of the labor market in the U.S. Between August and September, 865,000 women dropped out versus 216,000 men. When you hear numbers like that, what do you think? One of the things this pandemic has exposed is that for women, there is a gross inequity in society. Our economies are built on the backs of women's unpaid labor. And we can do something about that, and we need to do something. So we're We've always kind of thought as a society, oh, those women's issues, those are a nice side issue. We'll get to them when we have time. No, women are the central issue. And I am quite worried about after this pandemic, will women be able to go back to work? Or is that a permanent job loss? And, you know, I think there's a lot of caregiving that's being done every single day for young children, for older parents. That is often two and a half times the amount of work that unpaid labor is done by women versus men. And so women have this undue burden. And now all of a sudden during COVID, it's gone up. And so they're dropping out of the workforce and to try and make everything work in an almost impossible situation. How can businesses keep their women employees in the workforce? They can make the work hours more flexible. They can say to women, you know, we understand that you have this extra burden We will do more paid leave days or more sick days because you have to care for somebody who's elderly in your family, have to care for your kids. Those are all things that can definitely help women. But they can also help women find childcare options. Right now, the childcare options are incredibly limited and they're hard to find. So how do you give stipends for childcare and help women and men find those options? I mean, I think the thing that's really tough, right, as a generation of women who we work and part of that has been we suppress our responsibilities on the home front. But when your kid is home with you all day long, it's hard to, like, square that juggle. And I guess I just think, are we not going backwards in perceptions, If women are the ones in the workplace asking for those hours and those stipends, then it is still women's problem. Oh, it has to be. Those stipends have to be for parents, not just women, parents, because we need to expect. We have to have these conversations, these difficult conversations in our home about who's really doing what. And then the workplace needs to signal to men, we expect you to go out too, not just women. I mean, I think the thing that's hard... For me, right, my employer offers, since COVID, time off during the week 
to take care of childcare needs, it's hard to take it. Right. It is hard to take it. Very. And so, again, how do we start to think about work, flexible work and balancing? I do think, you know, we have to be careful about our capitalistic system. I believe in a capitalistic system, absolutely. But we haven't gotten that balance quite right in the United States. And we need to recognize that people have this whole side of their life that they deeply care about called family. And yet women want to work to be empowered, but also women and men need to work to have the income to make this juggle happen. At the policymaker level and the lawmaker level, what should they be doing to help women stay in the workforce? Well, for sure, during when these stimulus packages come out, doing more paid leave days, more sick days to help women and men be able to care for their parents and their loved ones and the the young ones. But long term, we need a paid family medical leave policy in the United States. These policies have existed in Europe for over 30 years. And in the United States, we have gotten stuck in this sort of mentality from the 1950s and 60s that dad went off to work and mom stayed home. When the truth is, most parents today in the United States actually work. And I guess one of the reasons I've become such a strong believer and advocate for getting more women into Congress is because you can't have an institution with so few women and minorities. Women and minorities have the full view of society. They will pass policies that benefit families, working families. Okay, so looking ahead to a year from now, what is the one thing you most want to see? I most would want to see people coming together and saying, you know, we got through this. This was hard. This was one of the hardest things we'd ever gotten through. But we we came together and we got through this. And we're actually thinking about everybody else, not just ourselves. You know, when they go back and interview people after World War II and the firebombing that happened in London, many people actually look at that as a positive time because they were part of the fire brigade. They were part of the rebuilding. They were part of taking care of their neighbor who had a lost loved one during that horrific time. That's the best in human nature. And I think sometimes you have to, as a group of people or a country, get to a low point before you can see where you need to go next. Melinda, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Kate. It's been a pleasure to chat with you. Likewise. That's all for today, Friday, October 16th. To hear my full conversation with Melinda Gates and other interviews with people like Evan Spiegel, CEO of Snap, or Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi, you can join the WSJ Tech Live conference at techlive.wsj.com slash register now. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Your hosts are Ryan Knutson and me, Kate Leinbaugh. The show is produced by Katherine Brewer, Gerard Cole, Pia Godkari, Annie Minoff, Afif Nasuli, Ricky Nevetsky, Sarah Platt, Willa Rubin, Annie Rostrasser, and Rob Zipko. Our engineers are Griffin Tanner and Nathan Singapok. Our theme music is by So Wiley. Additional music this week from Peter Leonard, Emma Munger, So Wiley, and Blue Dot Sessions. 
Fact-Checking by Nicole Pasulka. Thanks for listening. See you Monday.